Welcome to the first season of the NFADB podcast, Pilot Project, constructed by the Volunteer Board of Directors of the National Family Association for Deaf Blind. This podcast will share the journeys and insights of families and educators and loved ones impacted by individuals with deaf blindness. We hope you find what we share to be beneficial, helpful, and inspiring. If you like us, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. This allows NFADB to continue its partnership with iTunes. Please go to the NFADB website at nfadb.org and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening. This is podcast number two. Author and expert Robbie Blayhaw has worked with students who are deafblind for more than 30 years. She has been the teacher of the teacher, the voice of reason, and a leader in the field of miracles. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, this is the NFADB podcast, and our guest today is Robbie Bleha. And thank you, Robbie, for being here. We are at the NFADB symposium, and she was courteous enough to come out of a conference and have a conversation and just share some information with you. So, thank you so much for being here, Robbie. Thank you. Um, tell me a little bit, or tell our our listener, possibly more. To a little bit <laughs> about you and um, your story, your journey, all that. Well, um, I was very fortunate um, to have an opportunity to start working with children with deaf blindness in 1971. Um, I was student teaching, and it was part of my student teaching assignment. Um, I was in the deaf ed program at University of Texas in Austin and so I had an opportunity to work with students with deaf blindness who had had rubella as part of the rubella epidemic and it changed my life. I loved it. You were hooked. I was hooked. I loved it. (laughs) So, so... Uh, how long? How long in education did you say? Well, I I taught in uh, classrooms um, that had children with deaf blindness for eight years, mm-hmm. and then um, all of those years they they were in classes that are considered self-contained. So all the students were deaf blind in those classrooms, and I stayed in that classroom. And then later um, I became an itinerant teacher, and I traveled from school to school within a county. And I had two children with deaf blindness as an itinerant teacher. Uh-huh. So, um, you and saw a lot of different perceptions of yeah. services. Yes, yeah. it's very different. The itinerant service is very different than the having a, a self-contained classroom. Mm-hmm. But when you have children with deaf blindness, they tend to be spread out. It's a low incidence disability, so they're geographically they really are spread out. And so, I really think in the future we'll be seeing more itinerant services. Mm-hmm. So how did you equip yourself as an itinerant teacher uh, to, to be mobile like that? Well, working um, with children with deaf blindness as an itinerant, the upside is that you have the ability to call IEP meetings. If you feel that there's problems with the services or as a teacher, uh, with a background in deaf blindness, I could call an IEP meeting and change the uh, accommodations the students were, were getting or putting in more deaf blind strategies. So I loved 
having that power to directly give input to into the IEP because that's such an important document. It's a legal mandate. So I loved that part. The part that was hard is that um, I got to visit the classroom and I got to work sometimes individually with the student but most of the time the person I was serving was the teacher so she could do a good job when I wasn't there. So I kind of missed I missed having that all that one-on-one -on -one time with the deafblind students. So, yeah, yeah. But you can see, like, is that the educational trend now? The itinerant. I think that well, the educational trend right now in deafblindness is that we are understaffed as a field. We don't have teachers and interveners at the local level, mm -hmm. so these kids are chronically underserved. Um, our hope is that we will have qualified personnel at the IEP level because that's where the families and kids need them. Yeah. And if that, um, when not if, when that comes to pass, I think it will be more of an itinerant model because the children are so far flung geographically. Mm -hmm. Now if you go to Harris County, you're going to find a lot of children. If you go to some of the smaller uh, counties, um, they may have one or two. So for the smaller communities, could you define what an intervener is? Well, I think that um, regardless of whether you're in a urban center or a rural center, rural area, an intervener is a complex and really vital service that children with deafblindness need in educational settings. And that has definitely um, been my experience in having the opportunity to work um, in classrooms with interveners since the early 90s. I, I really have seen the difference in the quality of services and the ability of a team to implement a good IEP with interveners. So I have to say that whether they're in an urban setting or a rural setting, by and large interveners are sort of professionally isolated. You might have, you know, 15 to 20 students in Houston ISD, but they're all over the place. So, for so the interveners are all over the place yeah. in different parts of town. And getting from one end of Houston to another is like, you know, that's an ordeal. So yes. a lot of times, I think one thing that I find is that interveners really have a hard time finding community to support each other. It's an unusual model. Or, no, it's not unusual. It's unfamiliar because school districts, um, to have a deafblind child is like being hit by a meteor. They're ra very rare. And so they bring with them un unique uh, accommodations and re unique related services. Mm -hmm. And that's what an intervener is, is a related service. So that's going to be a new option for a school. And it's a learning curve. Nice. So, so that intervener... Uh, what type of services do, do they offer that are that's different from possibly, let's say, just a typical Para, paid a paraprofessional? paraprofessional. Well, um, an intervener has a, a different skill set. They're specifically trained in the area of deafblindness, which means that they're familiar with the accommodations a child with deafblindness typically would have. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, when you have problems seeing and hearing, you have a very difficult time gathering information and even understanding what's about to happen around you. You don't see uh, kids zipping up their backpacks and standing up, so you don't know that they're getting ready to leave. Mm 
And so you're having trouble anticipating the next step um, in your day. But an intervener would know how to give you the information that you need so that you can expect changes in your day. They would know how to feed you that information that other kids pick up effortlessly. They, um, an intervener would know the child's communication system, for example, because children with deaf blindness, uh, we've all seen sign language, but when you're visually impaired, you don't see sign language. Uh, so a child with deaf blindness is going to need to go tactile. Well, an intervener is going to be familiar with the communication strategies. So they're familiar with the unique strategies and accommodations associated with deaf blindness. And that's what helps the team. Getting someone to help facilitate school in the dark with headphones. So, yes, <laughs> yes, to, yes. It's a totally different, no matter where that deafblind child is in that school, they're in a different experience. They can be in the cafeteria with 50 other kids and it's not the same experience as it is for the other children. And mitigating um, those environmental changes, helping them get information, helping them be prepared to respond and, and act is critical. So do you think that the intervener kind of bridges, bridges that gap? Yes, I think that's one of the roles. I think the most important thing an intervener does is um, help if, if, if the team has a good IEP, it, it makes that IEP come alive for the child. It makes that educational plan work for the child. And it cuts through the isolation, because deaf blindness is terribly isolating. And it's a very lonely condition. And just because you're deaf blind doesn't mean you're set up to handle that loneliness. You've got an eight-year-old little girl who has all the needs of any other little human being who's eight years old, and you put deaf blindness on top of that, what happens is her needs don't change. She just has a hard time getting them met. So I think that um, interveners are, are really uh, critical at helping a team set up something that's really a quality of life for the, for the students and educational. Yeah, it, yeah. You, I think when you said um, good IEP, Mm-hmm. That, that's a mouthful sometimes. Mm -hmm. sure. It's unusual to find a good IEP in my experience. I've, um, after I left the classroom, I began on the De Texas Deaf Line Project in 1982. Uh -huh. And so I started traveling around the state. And I took the training I had and thought it would be just a matter of passing this information on and then moving on to the next classroom. But that wasn't the case. Uh -huh. um, what, what steers our kids' programming is the IEP. And to have a good IEP, you have to be very familiar with how to interact and assess and evaluate a student. Yeah. And the teachers, um, teachers of the deaf, teachers of visually impaired, and I'm, I'm certified in both areas, so I, I can say this. I went to UT, I'm certified <laughs> in both areas, and I got nothing on deaf blindness in either area. So It's like pick a, pick a camp and hope that you went in Deafblind, uh, the deaf camp, or the, the blind camp was the right one. And you know, and we shouldn't have to pick because yeah. the, the blind camp, the visually impaired camp, assumes that you can hear and they use your hearing to compensate for the vision loss. Mm -hmm. When you're in a deaf ed classroom, you use your vision to compensate. Yeah. But when you're deaf blind, you don't have a, a distance sense. 
to compensate with. And so it's the combined effects. It's not deaf and blind, it's deaf times blind. It creates a unique barrier so that the compensatory skills for either the visually impaired or the deaf are not enough. You need different things to get the information into the kid's body. So what do you think that answer is? Well, I think that the IEPs right now are typically not appropriate, which means the kids suffer and the families suffer watching their children suffer. Mm -hmm. And the burden falls to the family right now to step in and every year re-educate the team on what it, what deafblindness is. And I think that, um, you know, teach in the field of hearing, or, um, for deaf and hard of hearing, they don't expect to make it without teachers with deaf and hard of hearing. And in VI, we certainly don't expect to make it without teachers of the visually impaired. So I don't know why when you put them together and get a more complex, unique disability that's not how you think you're going to manage without a teacher there to bring that information to the table. Yeah. You need a teacher there who can explain the, or who can share the appropriate evaluations, who can help interpret the evaluations. Just as an example, a teacher of the deaf hard of hearing, you're trained to look at four things. You're mandated actually to look at four things when you develop a communication system, mm -hmm. finger spelling, sign, oral, and oral. Well, so when you have a deaf blind child, the deaf blind child needs to have the same evaluation because of the hearing loss and the deafness. So when you sit down to evaluate finger spelling as a teacher of the deaf, you don't know what to do with a child who can't see finger spelling. Yeah. At, 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 you know, usually you assess about three feet. Yes. You know, you, you assess about three feet away when you're sitting down with the deaf student. And a lot of sign conversation happens at 15 feet with the teacher. Three to 15 mm -hmm. feet is your visual range. Very, very common. And, and deaf, deaf children with deafness who are deaf hard of hearing have no trouble. A, bit, a child with deaf blindness, you're not on their radar. So you didn't evaluate them in fingerspelling. You have no idea what their capacity is. And you need a teacher with deaf blindness to step in and say, here's how you have to place the fingerspelling so they have access to it, so you can appropriately do your mandated evaluation. And that's the type of thing a teacher with deafblind brings to the table. Wow. And I think it will lift a lot off the team, and I think it will lift a lot off the parents' shoulders. I don't think it will work without them. I haven't seen it work without them, and I have been on this grant since 1982, and I've worked very hard on this grant. But I don't think we, are, we can be the only profession without staff. Yeah. We are not staffed. So I think teachers of deafblindness, and I think interveners are both cri cri critical, critical. What movements are happening right now, uh, legislatively? That's it's a great time. This is the best time ever. Um, I think that uh, we have um, an opportunity now at the federal level, because IDEA is going to be amended. It's up for amendment. And uh, we were very fortunate because the community with deaf hard of hearing wrote a section of the bill, Title I, of the Alice Cogswell, Annie Sullivan, Macy. If you want a tattoo, that would be a good one. Just <laughs> put it on your arm and show everybody. It has three sections. The first section is for deaf and hard of hearing. They wrote things that they want to see changed at the federal level that will mandate for the state's improved services for deaf. 
Title II is for children with visual impairments. Title III is children with deaf blindness. And so in there, we put language into, the, into Title III that specifically say teacher of deaf blind and interveners. We say they need qualified personnel available at the district level. It's in there. And the best part of this bill is it talks about state plans, which is the best kept secret on earth. <laughs> Talk more about that. Okay, thank you. Well, I was plans. hoping you would ask that because um, the federal government gives the states a lot of money for special ed. And in order to receive this money, every state has to develop a state plan on how are, how are you going to use it, which is totally reasonable. Yes. So the um, says that you will not have a state plan without bringing to the table in Title III under deafblind parents of children with deafblindness, ex recognized experts, and advocacy groups. Advocacy groups, it says in there, you have to have these people at the table to, and you will explain and, in, and address in your state plan how you will have qualified personnel. And it, and it will put it in a state plan, which is a state directive, and that does become the business of our legislature and the um, commissioner's rules, which is, there's two ways we get things in law, uh, the legislature and the commissioner rules. So one or the other, they're gonna have, they have to come up with it. And with that will give us our teeth. What do you think the importance of defining that team what is the importance of that for an individual with blindness? Defining which team? The team on sitting on the state plan? Yes. Because they're knowledgeable about deafblindness. Yeah. And, and, and having people with deafblindness on that committee, people, who, families, advocacy groups, and professionals who've worked with them, I think we'll get closer to reality because we're not there now. We are nowhere near reality. Yeah. On what on what should be happening at the local level? It's it's a uh, they're chronically underserved right now. It is not it's not appropriate, and that is appropriate is a term in IDEA. It's a legal term. Yes. A yes. Access appropriate access. We don't have it for children with deafblindness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that it's it seems like that that will help bridge that gap between the parent battling in that IEP meeting for it. it it brings in some other perspectives and, and kind of have a unified voice. Yes. Do you believe that? Absolutely. I think it's I just I, it's crushing for the families to go in. You know, I hear the same things over and over. They'll say by March they'll get it. We'll come back and the whole you know, the team turns over. Mm -hmm. And it's not that people don't care and it's not that they're not well intentioned. This is a separate field. It's complex. There's a lot of information out there. And you can't just wing it. You have to be trained in it yes. and have worked with a lot of these kids. To You need someone there to just share the information practically. Mm -hmm. It seems like it, that scenario that you just gave to be knowledgeable in that area seems to be few and far between and almost like a... In like depth lineup. Yeah, like a lottery mm -hmm. system of... Man, our lucky mm -hmm. numbers came mm -hmm. in. If we have that, mm -hmm. going it's very on. rare. I mean, you hear about bright, a few bright spots, and that's what they are. There are a few bright spots, and um, it's tragic. What are, those, what are those bright spots doing? The bright spots have qualified personnel uh -huh. working with the kids. 
and the the um, IEP meetings. Uh, what's happening there? What what advice would you give a, a a parent now in the meantime as we're we're working on those legislative issues? But you know, I think in the meantime, it's it's going to be a long time before we see this bill come through. And I think in the meantime. Um, I think that we need to get ready. Whether or not this bill or not passes doesn't mean we can't approach our state and say, we know you're getting money. Mm -hmm. And we would like a voice and we would like to help you spend it appropriately. Yes, yeah. It's cost effective, besides being ethically in line with the universe. So I think that, um, and in the meantime, try to hook up with the training and support with your state projects. But state projects were meant to train a group of staff. Right. And in and, and deaf blindness, we don't have the staff. We have people who are on a, an IEP team who are not trained in deaf blindness who can go to several workshops and then they turn over. A state project is intended to keep working with the same field and getting their skills up. Seems like we have like this makeshift crew. We have a makeshift crew. Now. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I call it the evaporative field. It evaporates every IEP. We we have and people will say to me, I'm so sorry I don't get to work with y'all anymore. I love this. I would love to be a teacher of deaf line. But she's moving to a new district. And when that happens, when that child moves, the whole team's out of the field. And so even people who come up and say, I want to teach deaf-blind, there are no positions for them. And I think an itinerant model would work. Because I see districts join together and they form a co-op. For example, some, some districts don't have a lot of VI, uh, visually impaired kids. So two or three districts will get together. They form a little co-op around a vision teacher. They'll, they'll hire one vision teacher and share. This is an old model in Texas. We do it with... Uh, teachers of the deaf, hard of hearing, we do it with teachers of visually impaired, and we do it orientation mobility instructors. There's no reason we can't use that model with children with deaf blindness. And you would have an itinerant who, if you only have four kids and you have counties around you and districts around you with the same number, you form a co-op. Yeah, no, that, that's a good answer to a lot of um, uh, the smaller districts who might have funding issues. This has been done to death. Yes, absolutely. With other fields. It's our time now. It's our turn. Yeah, yeah. So, so shifting gears, um, what, makes, what makes a good IEP? Brand, brand new teacher, brand new, uh, no, let me go brand new parent in first IEP meeting. Uh, what advice do you give them? Um, get along. Be gracious, because you're going to you're entering into a long life of negotiations. You are the ambassador for your child. You speak for your child, and you need to be an ambassador to negotiate a kind of a treaty, which is what the IEP is. You're negotiating a treaty on behalf of your child, and remember that you are an ambassador for your child. That means you speak for your child and you speak well for your child and you speak un unwaveringly for your child, but you do it in a way that leaves negotiations open and dialogue. Because you, if you get polarized from the beginning, you'll miss opportunities for progress and you, you won't sleep at night. Yeah. So that's, and I would say, that, um, 
usually on the team, there's someone you're comfortable with that you can use as a sounding board. Mm -hmm. Who, It's the person who gets it. And I always ask the parents I work with, who's, who's your, who do you just love on your team? Who, and they always have somebody. Yeah. And I, I think that... Um, preparation there. So, so what, what prep steps I, prior get, to the IEP? Uh, know your child's, not only their rights, which they'll give you a parent rights handbook and you can there's lots of agencies that will help you understand the rights of your child and truthfully I've seen some shenanigans but I have to say districts really want to comply what I really see happening is that they don't have the wildest idea how to evaluate and serve the student mm -hmm. so they'll try to do what has worked well with an autistic kid you know, yes. or some other type of disability that yes. they're good at. That they're familiar. That they're familiar with, but that's not appropriate. Yes. So I think learning as much as you can about the field of deaf blindness, and it's never been more accessible, thanks to this amazing work mm -hmm. that the National uh, NCDB does. Yes. I mean, the fact that they started in 1990. Before then, we didn't know what was in each other's filing cabinets. And now, nationally, any parent can click on there or pick up the phone and call some of these outstanding people and get to know your state deafblind project. Yes. That's what they're there for. Google state deafblind? Google it. Or go, go on to the NCDB website, and it'll say find people and find your state project. You can, they have a map you can click on each state and they'll tell you who your project awesome is. Awesome resource. Awesome it's resource. an awesome resource. Yes. That's another miracle in deaf blindness. Those projects came in, were funded in 1982 and I'm amazed. It's 2016 and they haven't cut us yet. We're on one line item, one little line item in Part D of IDEA and through every administration they haven't cut us. And p things yeah. get cut right and left. It's a miracle. Yeah. That that water pump with Aunt Helen Keller was the first. <laughs> uh -huh. But we are a field of miracles. We are the lowest of low incidents in this country, and they still fund us. Yes. Wow. They still haven't let us sink. Yeah. Our voices are out there. So. The parents. Well, it's it, the parents made the miracle happen. Yeah. The parents have been amazing advocates, and they've kept the field afloat. But now we need to bring staff in so the parents aren't doing all the paddling. Mm -hmm. So, brand new administrator, special ed teacher. What what, do you, what advice do you have for that special ed teacher who gets a, a deafblind student in their classroom? Well, first of all, congratulations. You. This is a fabulous opportunity. They're amazing. You will. They will change you. And um, I would give them the same advice. Get online and, and get hook up to your State Deaf Blind Project and see what, what's out there that you can download readily. And there are people who, people in deaf blindness are committed to it. They're dogged. They will help you to death if you will talk to them. Their, their dream is to get to come five hours one direction to see that child with deaf blindness because they love them. And so um, I think that um, the districts we've worked with have been amazing, amazing what they will do on behalf of that child. They just want the information. That's all it is. And the nice stuff is this stuff works. 
That's a satisfying thing. It works. Mm-hmm. You know? That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah. So principal, new new student with deaf blindness on the campus. What what do you, what advice do you give that that principal in making that student involved and belong and I think, get that quality educate that appropriate education that they deserve? I think you need to accept the fact that to be to do the right thing, it's not going to be business as usual. Mm-hmm. That the because the disability is so different the strategies are going to be different and that's going to make things a little different around the school and that's okay because it is about individual education plans the fact that we have a federal law that starts with individuals is to me one of the it's some of the finest civil rights legislation that I've ever seen come out of any country in the world and I think I'm very proud of it and I think that um, they have an opportunity um, to do something right and do it well for a student and then sometimes to just help them breathe. I say, remember it's the lowest of low incidence disability and you will not have 10. It will be very unlikely that you will have 10. So if you will please move heaven and earth for this child, I guarantee you, odds are you'll, it, there, there's, an, there's a finite thing here. You know, you will. Your school will snap back to normal. It will be fine. We can do this, yeah. and um, sometimes that helps them initially. But it's been my experience. They get bought in. They, you know, these kids, these kids are magic. They suck you in. <laughs> the love is there. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Once they breathe, once once they breathe in, and the the uh, principals and the teachers mm-hmm. kind of breathe in and out, they realize they realize this still, is going to be great. They're proud of still it. Still have a fantastic kid there. Just. Yeah. Just get ready. And yeah. Have those accommodations in place for them. Yes. So, so as far as um, uh, what do you think is working well right now in the deafblind community? I think um, I think the collaboration. I've never seen it quite this extensive in the I don't know how many years. Forty-five years I've been in the field. I've never seen the field so hooked up and working together across geographical boundaries. It's interesting, the one thing I can say about this field that is, um, uh, once again, a miracle to me, is that philosophically, we're all on the same page. It's very interesting in our field. There isn't a lot of controversy about the right thing to do. It's, that's the one thing we know, is what to do. And so we have common ground immediately. And so I think the political collaborations are going to be as forceful and effective as they were after the rebella epidemic 50 years ago. This was before IDEA, this was before any of this. The rebella parents put the funding in place. That one line item has been there and it was the parents that put it there and they, Washington didn't have a chance and I, that was one of the turning points in our, in history for special education because it was the first time they demanded that the schools serve them. And before that, it wasn't a mandate. They didn't, schools didn't have to take children with special education at all. And so it was the rebel epidemic and those families had a lot to do with IDEA. 
which we take for granted now, but it was, I remember before, I was in the classroom before we had it, and it was totally up to that principal who crossed his door. Yeah. So I, I hear those, those educators, those uh, administrators, those parents that are thinking that they're in this alone. Um, how do you, how, what resources do you give them to link up with the community? I think for families, uh, NFADB, the National Family Association on Deaf Blindness, I think they find their community. I think this, I, I just think NFADB, um, watching what's happening now and the effect it's having, I think we're building, watching the kind of a national building of a community that's going to be have a, a huge amount of change. Yeah. Oh, I'm very confident so. of that. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, educators, how how do they um, get trained? What should they go to? What, what do you recommend? Well, um, right now, IDEA has different parts, and there's Part D, and that's where the money comes to train and educate uh-huh. staff in special ed and currently we fund programs that college programs that train teachers of deafblind there are actually teachers of deafblind we have lots of them in texas but there are no jobs uh, yeah. we i know quite a few who have masters in deafblindness and that's what they want to do for a living yeah, yeah. but there are no jobs so what they do is they go to the district and they say if, if any child with deafblindness comes through may i please have that child you know, but what we need um, is to create positions yeah. for qualified personnel. We've got the cart before the horse right now. We do. <laughs> it's like we did it all backwards, bless our hearts. But it just, I, I know exactly. I do remember how every decision was made. And it, at the time, it was the best move we had. Because mm-hmm. I remember when we didn't know what to do with children with deafblindness, and that was in the early 70s. So they funded these programs called pilot programs that I taught in and pilot programs were charged with figuring it out and they trained us and they wrote down things we tried and over time we kind of over years you know the pilot programs across the United States kind of got a clue and uh, we worked with uh, the European community with Jan van Dyke and he was hugely helpful and I would I my first probably I don't know how many years I was paid as a teacher of deafblind by federal funds. I was paid as a teacher of deafblind. So you had a field of teachers of deafblind who were cranking it out. Uh-huh. Then in 82, they said the monies are going to not go for teachers of deafblind. We'll put them into training, like the projects. Uh-huh. And the districts will pick up the positions, and they didn't. So, but it, so then we had all this information. We had, yeah. was like, now I know what to do. Yeah. And they said, well, let's have this clearinghouse. So they, we, NCDB was formed, and now it's great, you know, and all these things were formed, and we're still, we still don't have the staff. So we have universities. Now universities are cranking them out, but we don't have a designated FTE, which is a position. Uh-huh. It's called an FTE. I don't know what it stands for. At each district. Full time employee. Okay, we need the districts and human resources have to say we need a teacher of deaf line, you know, 20 hours a week in this district. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when that happens, we've got everything yeah. in place. It's the last piece. That could be that itinerant with that. That could be that itinerant. I'm sure. I totally see an itinerant role because I see it for deaf and VI. Uh-huh. 
I was an itinerant for 10 years. It's a well-traveled road. I was co-opt. I was between uh, two towns in a county, rural county, and I drove from Austin because they couldn't get anybody out there. I drove 40 minutes one way to work there. You know, and I worked there 10 years. I said I'd work one, and then I got addicted. I thought, well, just one more year, just one more year. I worked there 10 years, and, and they co-opted, and that's how we did it. Yeah. That's so, what suckered me into education. It, was, it? it was like, let me just go ahead and well, work on my master's. Yeah. And, you know, yeah 18 years later. I know. It's what like, what the heck just happened? You know, because you love it. Yeah. And you just think, one more year, one more year, one more year, and then you realize, yikes. Right. You right. know? Yeah. So, Robbie, what's your passion? What are you working on right now? I'm interested in working with adults oh. because actually some Tell of my students, more. well, some of my students are now in their 30s and 40s, and I see what, what we at least had a shot at some, man, some mandates and services in schools, mm-hmm. um, but now in adults, it's a lot of them are very isolated and lonely. Yeah, what's out there? Not much, and so I'm actually signing a contract next month to start working with some deaf-blind adults. Yeah, I'm really, I'm, because I, I kind of feel like I owe them. Yeah, yeah. You know, I owe them, you so know. So where does that funding come from for deafblind adults? Uh, well, right now, there's something called independent living centers in Texas. Mm-hmm. And as I understand it, the state schools have been closed. And so there's funding there, and they have other kind of facilities that offer specific types of skills and services. It's kind of specific. And some of the, their clients are individuals with deaf blindness. But others may not qualify for that. So right now, I'm, I'm very concerned about them. I'm concerned about the deaf blind adults and the young ones. So that's what... Um, that's what I want to work on next because it's it's pretty bleak and it's it's very hard for the families to see, you know, to I, see I it. I noticed that the families who have the financial means, you know, right. they create something mm-hmm. for their child, mm-hmm. but that's not everyone, and, and so then it's you know what's going on there, and mm-hmm. a lot of times it's. Assisted living mm-hmm. facilities, yes, and and that's not necessarily a, a not if they don't understand deaf blindness. Yeah. I've seen kids go into these with full communication systems and no one to talk to, and I'm telling you, 18 months year, later, they're pulling their eyebrows out literally mm-hmm. because they can't take the the. Um, it's very. It doesn't. It's almost it's cruel. Um, it's unfortunate you know, that may be the only answer for, for some families right now. And so And they pay taxes. We have the money. We have the money to do it the right way. Yeah. It's more expensive to do it the wrong way. And I I really I'm hoping I'm looking forward to working in adult services. And I'm just starting so I don't have the wildest idea of really what I'm doing, but that's what I'd like to do next. I hear your your undercurrent is legislation. Yes. We've got to get on it. Yeah. And we have to yeah. advocate and be a voice there and, yes. and get people listening. Yes, we're doing the right thing. We just need to continue to get organized. And I, I think, I just am very confident the parents will do it. Mm-hmm. I really believe in them. I believe totally in the parents. I've seen it too many times. I've seen too many miracles. To, it's never should have happened, and it happened politically. It never should have happened, and it happened. You know, I just can't believe it. But then I keep thinking this is a field of miracles. It is. Very much so. It is.
So, so Robbie, uh, if someone wants to contact you or uh, has a question or... I'm Robbie Blayhive with the Texas Deaf Blind Project. We're housed at Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Austin, Texas. And our project has designated staff paid by IDEA. The funds flow through Texas Education Agency. They subcontract at the Texas School for the Blind Outreach Department, which is a terrific place to work, and we are ready to go. Nice. I would love to put your email contact information in our podcast transcripts for and you know what I'm going to give you my supervisors because when I'm out whenever when we're on the road mama she will take care of it (laughs) she will make sure that that this uh we're in contact I love it thanks Robbie for being here and and giving us the information to our listener and listeners (laughs) okay thank you Stephanie thank you very much